Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Therapy Explained podcast. My guest today is behavioural psychologist Padraig Walsh, a specialist in applied behavioural analysis, otherwise known as ABA. Padraig has a wealth of experience working with families, organisations and schools using ABA, which shines through in our discussion. We discuss the principles behind ABA, how these are applied in the real world to improve behaviours for a range of populations, including children with developmental disabilities, students who might struggle in mainstream education, and influencing the wider population in their decision making. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm joined by Porik Walsh, a behavioural psychologist. Porik has worked as a clinical lead applying positive behavioural support for different organisations throughout Ireland. He currently works as a director in Situ Clinical, who provides psychological and psychiatric support to people with intellectual disabilities. Hi Porik, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much, James. Today we're going to talk about applied behavioural analysis. Do you mind getting us started by giving us your understanding of what that is? Well, where do we start? Uh, Thanks a million for having me on, James. And uh, I'm sure you could have had much more eminent uh, people to discuss applied behaviour analysis and ABA. But I'll give it a shot. Um, So I'm I'm working in the field of applied behaviour analysis for the last 16 years now. I was one of the, the first graduates from the NUI Galway Masters in ABA. And if I were to break it down, applied behaviour analysis is looking at the psychology of learning. And it's looking at how we learn through our nurture. Okay, so when you when you think about a behavioural psychologist and you look at the nature versus nurture debate, we will always look at that nurture effect and we will try to understand how human behavior, human cognition, human emotion is influenced by those factors in our environment, okay? And then how we learn to uh, behave and how we learn to respond. So in some ways, if we look at applied behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis is applied. And that's the real challenge for us, is that we are trying to take the science of human behavior and to apply it in real world settings. And those real world settings include areas like health and social care. So you'll often hear ABA referred to and used in the fields of intellectual disability in terms of early intensive behavioral intervention for children who have autism. You'll hear about it in terms of school-wide positive behaviour support. But you'll also see an emerging application of behavioural science in things things such as how we promote environmental change. You know, if we're talking about reducing carbon emissions and we have technology now to tell us or to help us make those changes like electric cars and heat pumps and cycle lanes and 15 minute cities. And all of these technologies exist, but we have no way to, to, I suppose, impact human behavior, no way to nudge us towards those alternative ways of, of being. Um, then we're in, we're in difficulties. Similarly, in large organizations, you will see be, human, behavioural science being applied to, you know, the biggest example at the moment has been porting all of the um, 
working from office spaces where people were in each other's environments. There were, it was easy to foster an organizational culture. It was easy to give feedback to each other. It was easy to give instruction. And all of that has been ported across to a working from home scenario. How does that operate? And organizations are really interested to understand the factors of human behavior. What influences employee performance? In schools, you're, you're, there's a constant recognition that um, future outcomes for children can be influenced from a very early age. That children who have experienced positive behaviour supports in their school setting will have better outcomes into their teenage and adult lives in, on domains such as uh, job outcomes, uh, relationship stability, you know, trouble with the law, substance abuse issues, etc, etc. So in that sense, there are huge, there are a huge number of applications of behaviour analysis. Um, but I suppose we'll talk a little bit about what it is, because um, I mentioned that it's the psychology of learning. Um, and, and just to caveat this as well, James, I know we were talking earlier, I've been up since half three this morning with a, a six-month-old baby who has, who's been, been getting sick. So uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll give it a lash and see how we go at it. Just to go back to what you were saying there, Park, so it sounds like there's a lot of theory based on how we develop in the context of our environment and how that can inform maybe our behaviours and what we do with that is practical applications to support. It sounds like all ages if we could spend a little bit of time thinking about the kind of theoretical basis underneath that part because i guess i was thinking just because you put an emphasis on those factors that influence our environment what kind of theoretical basis is behind that i'm thinking you know the likes of maybe polyvagal theory attachment theory um jean piaget is that a large part of the understanding of it if we were talking about the the psychology of human learning let's take two strong components of behavior analysis one is is what we call classical conditioning okay so conditioning would be what we refer to it's, it's a term that that that's a cinnamon for learning okay so we're conditioning the classical conditioning is that pavlov's dog theory that we learn through association that by uh pairing a particular stimulus with another stimulus, it can uh, evoke the same responses. Now, that's a real, that's a real kind of convoluted, uh, sleep-deprived way of describing it. But if I were to give you some real-world examples of what classical conditioning looks like, um, you could describe um, when I work, when I'm here in my office, I'll often have piano music in the background low, relaxing piano music, which I have learned over the years to associate with good times. So when I was uh, much younger and I was traveling in different areas of the world, I would have had that same music on. And that in, it, in the background evokes the same feelings in me, or sometimes it does, maybe of a Tuesday morning when it's raining outside in November, it, it struggles a little bit, but it can evoke similar feelings as it did before. Now, this 
classical conditioning where we pair a particular stimulus. In this case, it's music, but it could be a smell. It could be a sound. It could be a, a feeling that when those two things are paired up, that can have, um, that can have big implications um, for what we're trying to do. Um, take sleep right because it seems to be the hot topic for me today when i was sleep training my son and we're not we're not sleep training but what we're trying to do is get him to uh to sleep when he was a newborn what we tried to do was to pair some stimuli and those stimuli were he has a little you know you and the sheep if any newborn parents out there they will know you and the sheep he's kind of he's got a red light which is uh you know a red light apparently is a really good uh, cue that reminds a child of the womb and that that kind of hue. And it also has, he has four little legs. You and the sheep has four little legs. And one of the, you press a little button on each of the legs and it gives out a different sound. And one of them is a harp. Another one is a heartbeat. And you and the sheep, when when my son was brought to bed at the very start, we would try and pair up an unconditioned stimulus, right? So what I mean by that is something that he didn't have to learn that is part of his instinct, okay? Like many of us, when he's after a big feed and when he has been awake for about two to three hours, I know that he's going to be tired. So after that feed, what we do is, just before he falls asleep, we turn on you and the sheep, we make sure that we have his blackout blinds uh, you know, on the window, so it's completely dark. And the only stimulus that he has is the red light and the sound of the heartbeat, and there's complete darkness. So this starts to form part of his sleep routine, okay? Now, as he gets older, what is happening is that when we put on the sound of you and the sheep, or where he's in a blackout in a, a dark room, you can already start to see his eyes getting heavy. Because what we have done is we have paired up the dark room, the red light, the sound of you and the sheep. To be honest, James, when I start to hear you and the sheep, I start to get tired and I start to get sleepy. And when I start singing, train whistle blowing, makes a sleepy noise, I find myself falling asleep. It could be five o'clock in the evening and I'm starting to drift off because I think at this stage I've been paired up and classically conditioned to fall asleep at that stage. I so think I'd that's probably an start getting a bit excited if I had the thought of my <laughs> child falling asleep. It might be the, the opposite. <laughs> yeah, look, at and, and, and this is one of the interesting things about, about uh, classical conditioning is that different stimuli can evoke different responses in all of us, okay? And, but this has, has real implications because just taking that example of where we have paired up certain stimuli um, to evoke a certain response. And we have to do that consistently over a long period of time. We call that conditioning, okay? And you sometimes call it classical conditioning. It can be called Pavlovian conditioning. It can be called respondent conditioning, right? But that's where I would call pairing. And what I'm trying to explain to my students when you hear all of these different names for classical conditioning, Pavlovian responding, I say, just think about it as learning through association or think of it like pairing. 
Now, this is this has impact has huge impacts for things such as uh, sales. If you think about a uh, a car salesperson, they will try and pair themselves up with good, with good vibes as well. They are really clued into the idea that if you have really nice smelling coffee in a forecourt, if you have nice playing music, if everything is spotless, if their their suit is clean and they're well turned out, we start to pair these you know, these feelings of class with a new car. And there's a reason why new cars smell a particular way. It's because they're trying to use the principles of classical conditioning. Same with advertisements, same with billboards, same with people going on a date. You know, people go on a date to really nice restaurants, turn themselves out well and have nice smelling perfume on. And you'll often have people say, oh, do you smell that perfume? That reminds me of this person or this time of my life or that feeling and you can see that their pupils are dilating and they're they're smiling that it's already evoking an unconditioned response in them because they're remembering a good time so classical conditioning is how we are learning we're turning something that is almost in our nature turning something that is almost like a reflex into something that is learned Right now, that has also has huge implications for things like trauma, could because and and you'll know this from from CBT. But if we understand classical conditioning, if we understand the strength and power of this learning by association and learning through pairing, we can start to understand why people who have experienced, let's say, something as traumatic as a car crash or something as traumatic as of as abuse start to become panicked in situations or when they're with stimuli that are associated with that so people who have been in a car crash might have a fear of getting into a car or might have a fear of sirens and though might have a fear of red cars or the sound of a loud noise and that evokes the same physiological responses, that same anxiety and trauma as the original event did. And that's classical conditioning in its, in its extreme form. So we, we try and utilize those principles and understanding that, okay, somebody has learned this, this trauma. Um, how can we unlearn this? And how can we uncondition this? And that, that will become part of a behavioural treatment. So we kind of look at the, the cycles that someone might get in because of their learned behaviour and how they would be responding is what they might do to self-soothe or to feel calm or to find safety. Yeah, absolutely. If you take the example of a child who is experienced, who's come from an at-risk home, um, and in the United States, for instance, there was a, a really good piece of research done by George Sugai and a number of his researchers in school-wide positive behaviour support. And what they were looking at were the reasons why certain children who are coming from at-risk backgrounds presented as, uh, I suppose, more challenging in terms of their behaviour, but also more anxious in a classroom. So what they did was, was a really interesting piece of research where they, they, looked at at a cross-section of, of a number of different classrooms across a, a school, school-wide district. And they divided children f- from at-risk backgrounds 
and took them in terms of their interquartile range. If you know, you know, they're to children who are from most at-risk backgrounds. So where there would be uh, substance abuse issues, where there would be a chaotic home life, where there would be potential abuse, where there would be erratic behaviours at home. And then they took those children who are from the most stable environments and they strapped them up to heart rate monitors and GSR, gal- galvanic skin responses, which measure stress in children. And what they did was they started to match up their physiological responses to the proximity of the teacher, physically, physical proximity of the teacher to them throughout the school day. And what they noticed was for those children who were coming from stable and consistent and predictable adult relationships and home environments, that those children, when a teacher approached them, had a very normal, stable physiological response. So they weren't becoming anxious, they weren't sweating, their heart rate wasn't spiking because they didn't anticipate any threat. They hadn't learnt that adult presence equals threat. So they're under the bonnet, as we like to say, their heart rate and their body was very stable. But for those children who had come from at-risk backgrounds, they had become conditioned to learn that adult presence equals danger, equals stress, equals potentially potentially something bad happening. So under the bonnet, what you couldn't see when they were in the classroom was that their heart rate and their stress response was spiking, 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 spiking when a teacher or a teaching assistant entered into their space or when a teacher interacted with them or when there was any sort of adult contact because they had, not because their nature tells them that adults are bad, but their nurture and their experience and their conditioning will tell them that adult equals threat. So that had a knock-on impact onto the child's response to adults. And it also has a knock-on impact to their ability to control their own behavior. Because when your heart rate is racing, when you're stressed, your behavior is going to reflect that. Am I right? You know, when we're, when we're stressed or where we're, when we are anxious, our behavior is going to reflect that. Now, the next question is, how do we uncondition that? How do we turn these children who have had really traumatic experiences with adults to start to learn, okay, actually, you know what? There is not danger every time I interact with an adult. Well, the first thing we have to do to uncondition that is, is pair up adult contact with good stuff happening, with safe, consistent, predictable interactions. So you have to have about a thousand, we always kind of say about a thousand positive, safe, consistent interactions with an adult. And that was done through a system called the check-in, check-out system, which was simply giving a notebook to the child. And every time they came into a classroom, they approached the teacher and they asked them to sign their notebook. And the agreement with the teacher was the teacher was going to check in with them and say, hey, you're here today. Lovely to see you. Great to have you in class. Loved your contributions the last day. Really looking forward to our class. And at the end of the class, the checkout was again, the teacher would sign the notebook, would reflect on the class with the child, give them some positive feedback and on they would go. And a child could have seven, eight classes a day. That's 15, 16 different check-ins, check-outs. It doesn't take you long to get to a thousand positive interactions. Now, they could be offset by negative interactions at home. But what you're trying to do is retilt the balance and retilt the conditioning.
So that's just one example of how you would desensitize somebody to a traumatic experience. And you would, in, in you know, if you've ever come across systematic desensitization for somebody who might have experienced trauma, that's classical conditioning using ABA um, at use, where you would, to give you a very brief outline of systematic desensitization, it is pairing up a relaxed response. So you would learn a way to relax your body physically. So it might be through breathing exercises. It might be through, quite often it's through breathing exercises because it's the most effective and it's the most portable way to help yourself relax very quickly physically to reduce your heart rate and to reduce your stress levels. And you would pair up that with, uh, I suppose, greater and greater gradients of uh, of that traumatic response. So, for instance, and I'm, I'm not explaining that too well. No, I, I think I get you, Bart. I guess what it sounds like, I could be getting this wrong, it's like graded exposure in a sense, or exposure therapy, but with exactly. the addition of um, the calming stimulus. And, yeah, you're right, breathing exercises being probably the best yeah, way that you can do things by yourself that can be applied to lots of situations. Exactly. And and that's that's kind of a summary of the first part of or the first kind of principle of behavior analysis of ABA. If I could and, just pause and the you, challenge. Yeah. Sorry, if I could just pause you there, just because the example you used, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a, such a fantastic way to try and um, help kids or teenagers in that situation. And it, it just it ties in so well with so many types of therapy if you're looking at it from a cbt perspective the beliefs you have about adults can change you know adults are unsafe versus adults are safe from um and internal family systems perspective it's about trying to have kind of good interactions with someone that's in they might define as being self but for want of a better word just when they're having a positive experience with someone or from a polyvagal ex- perspective it might be co-regulation so it makes a lot of sense with helping someone shape their nervous system through those positive interactions but i guess that's would be where there might be challenging behavior in schools how about um people with maybe intellectual disabilities or autism how would ABA look to work with those kind of instances yeah and it's, it's a really good question because in ireland currently predominantly people who are qualified in ABA or behaviour analysts work in the fields of health, social care and education. And the predominant population is individuals with intellectual dis- intellectual disability, autism, and quite very often behaviours of concern. Okay. Now I would use a, um, an approach called positive behaviour support, which combines the principles of ABA with that of a, a rights-based approach. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, the impacts that that has in terms of restricted practices, in terms of the Assisted Decision-Making Act for people with disability, and how ABA has contributed to the, um, the, the rights-based approach and, and improved outcomes for people with disability and autism. But if you're talking about what does that look like for people with ID and autism, I need to kind of cover the second part of um, of ABA or of conditioning. And that's what we call operant conditioning, right? And that's what people kind of 
tend to think more of when they think of behavior analysis is this ABC model that our behavior is shaped by some sort of trigger then we behave in a particular way and then we receive a C, which is the consequence, be it a reward or be it a punisher, okay? Now, we're not going to be able to cover the whole uh, gamut of, of operant conditioning, but what it means is, and I, I, I mentioned to you before that you, you had a, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Michael Keane, who we run the Actualize Academy together, and Mike is, is really strong on neurofeedback, which is using EEG to measure brain activity and to shape up particular brain activity in particular parts of the brain. And that uses operant conditioning. And what we do is we will try and shape particular behaviors um, through by teaching, by saying, okay, in a particular environment or with a particular instruction, if you behave in a particular way, this will be the consequence that you, you experience if that makes sense. And, and you see this used regularly in schools. So a really nice example is what we call the good behavior game. It's something that emerged in the 60s. It's used in every single primary school, but it's a nice example of group, group contingencies. What I mean by a contingency is if you do this, then you get this. Um, primary school teachers use it all the time. Children are broken up into different tables. If you've ever been in a school setting, you'll know what this looks like. There'll be a red table with four kids. There'll be a yellow table, a green table and a blue table, all with four or five kids on it. And there will be a specific set of positively framed rules. So we are kind to each other. We, pay, uh, we use our indoor voice when we're inside. We walk when we're in the classroom. We keep our hands and feet to ourselves. Do 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 do. A whole set of, of positively framed rules and what we call behavioral expectations. All right. And kids are taught these behavioral expectations. That would be the antecedent. The antecedent will be the instruction. It will be the rule. It will be the environment that the children are in. And they will know that there is an expectation to behave in a particular way. And then the teacher will give them tokens or now in the modern age, I think you have uh, this on whiteboards. It's coder. It's dojo, class dojo or kids will get tokens or there will be particular rewards at the end of the week. And that's a really simple example of operant conditioning at play. But that's operant conditioning is influencing human behavior throughout the broad dimensions of human life. It, it influences us in, in our day-to-day -day lives significantly. Um, and that is just one example of it in, in education. But what we try and do for somebody with autism or intellectual disability, because they have a learning difficulty and because ABA is the study of uh, the psychology of learning, that gives us a good advantage in terms of breaking things down and making learning easier for somebody with autism or intellectual disability. So I mentioned earlier on the use of EIBI, Early Intensive Behavioural Intervention for a Child with Autism or an Autistic Child. And that's predominantly where people would have heard of ABA, of Applied Behaviour Analysis, is in this Early Behavioural Intervention for a Child with Autism. And the way that ABA would be used is to support uh, teaching for that child, to break down and to have a child 
guide the the learning so to teach them communication skills to teach them self-care skills to teach them um adaptive behavior skills to teach them social skills but using a behavioral approach that will break down a very complex task into very simple bite-sized what we call learning units so rather than something like uh you know a social interaction you know making a friend that can be really difficult if you think about it because there are so many different things going on when do i know when to initiate conversation with somebody what do i talk about when do i know to shut up when can i talk again when do i know the conversation is over so using social skills training in aba you would teach the person the cues, the antecedents. You would teach them the instructions. You would teach them some themes or topics that will help them to break the ice. And you will, you will kind of make sense of this kind of tricky to understand social world. You'll see toilet training, you will see sleep training and feeding being taught using the principles of operant conditioning, where you will have a you will have a clear instruction made very, very salient for the, for the, the child. You will have a very clear bite-sized behavior indicated, and then you will, use the, you will use reinforcement. So the consequence will be something that the child enjoys given to them contingent upon those behaviors happening. And that's, that's operant conditioning, and that would be some of the key principles of early intensive behavioural intervention. Almost similar to the, well, it makes me think about exposure therapy in the sense that there's like an approximate zone of growth for any of us and for children with uh, an ID or autism. It's about breaking it down so that it's not so overwhelming, but equally is difficult enough that it grabs their attention and that they want to do it. And it's trying to taper that. We had a really nice approach to simplify that in a school called Saplings. I worked in years ago, 15 years ago, uh, but I still remember that principle which said that the learner is always right. So if a child isn't picking up on something, if they're not making progress on a particular task, well, then we need to change the environment. We need to change the motivation or we need to make that task simpler for them. So we are changing the antecedent. Maybe we need to change the instruction. Maybe we need to change the behavior. Perhaps we have set it too high or too low. Or maybe we need to change the consequence, which is going to influence motivation for the child. But ultimately, the learner is always right. And it is our responsibility as their teacher or their tutor to adapt the environment, which is a step away from the traditional curriculum based approach, which says this is the curriculum. There's a group of children and, you know, predominantly children will be able to fit within that, but that we don't really have the capacity in, in in group uh, classrooms to adapt the the curriculum for each individual child but using inter using aba and an early intensive behavioral intervention that would be your responsibility it does sound like quite a cultural shift from what i experienced going to school and, and, I, I, mm, and I, I, my understanding from kind of knowing a few teachers is it seems to be that kind of approach to working with kids rather than that um, didactic approach has become it's been facilitated a lot more. Is that your experience of things, Borg? That, that uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it, it has. And I suppose there's a, a much greater understanding of special education, but there's still huge gaps that exist. And this is where uh, Dr. Michael Keane and I formed the Actualize Academy, which is a CPD, an online CPD college for teachers to give them some insights into uh, positive behaviour support, into positive psychology, into a applied behavior analysis uh, you know how to work with children whose behavior presents as a concern um so just to give those skills because they're not always covered in the undergraduate uh, approach and usually it's it's learning on the job that that has a uh, helps a teacher in a classroom to adapt their their teaching styles for for a child so that's one way we try to to help out there so a couple of aspects of ABA are the conditioning, theoretical frameworks that are that is conditioning. Are there any other components or aspects of um, ABA that might be helpful to be aware of? I mentioned earlier on that uh, I would I've I've described early intensive behavioural intervention to you, EIBI, but I actually probably haven't used that approach myself too much over the last decade. Most of the last I'd say 10 to 15 years, I've been using an approach called positive behavior support. And positive behavior support um, merges the principles of ABA, of behavioral science, with the emerging recognition that people with an intellectual disability have rights. That if you look at, at where services for a person with ID uh, in Ireland emerge from it, emerge from charity, you know, and this is why so many of our services are known as the Sisters of Charity, the Buddhas of Charity, the Daughters of Charity. Um, they would have been formed as charitable organisations. And over the last 10 to 20 years, there has been a recognition, particularly in the last few years, where Ireland has adopted the UN Convention for the Rights, uh, UN Convention on the Rights for Persons with Disability, that it's not a charity to give an adequate service to somebody with a disability. It's a, an inherent right. So when you start to merge those rights for somebody with a disability with the principles of behaviour analysis, you start to go, right, there is there is a strong ethical approach to, to ABA. One of the areas where it became very, very apparent was in the use of restricted practices. Okay. Um, if you take the experience of somebody who had an intellectual disability 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, they would have limited communication skills, possibly sensory processing difficulties, undiagnosed trauma from probably being in a residential service away from their family, huge gamut of needs and perhaps would present with behavioural challenges, behaviours of concern that indicate I am experiencing trauma, I'm experiencing sensory overstimulation, I'm trying to communicate an unmet need that I haven't been taught, the environment hasn't been adapted in a way that I can access what I need to access, or I just don't like where I am. So if somebody with an, uh, with an additional support need, be it intellectual disability, autism, mental health difficulty, would present with a behaviour of, of concern, what was really emerging and this is across the United Kingdom, Ireland and the United States, was the use of what we call restricted practices. So if somebody is assaulting 
another person or if they are overeating or if they are breaking items or if they are hurting themselves, then we need to make sure that that person remains safe and but also respect their rights. And this was something, the, the use of, of physical restraint, the use of chemical restraint in the forms of inappropriate medication was uh, something that was just unregulated. Um, across disability services in Ireland until about 2013 when the Health Act came in and the Health Information and Quality Authority, HICWA, uh, set standards for residential settings and said, actually, you know what? If restrictive practices are being used, a person needs to have a positive behaviour support plan. There needs to be a functional behaviour assessment carried out. So we can't just restrict a person's movement. We can't impose a restricted practice on this person just because their behaviour presents as a concern. Our first port of call needs to be to understand why this behaviour is presenting the way it is. And that functional behaviour assessment is carried out using the principles of ABA. It is looking not just at, as I mentioned, the antecedent, as in the trigger, the behaviour and the consequence, but it also takes into account the person's quality of life, the setting event, their health, the quality of relationships that they have, a whole host of different impacts that would be, that would be had on their lives. And then it would be designing a behaviour support plan that changes the environment, that changes the approaches with this person, that modifies consequences as well, not using punishment, because punishment is an unethical, although in, in the behavioural literature from the 60s, 70s, 80s, you will see small examples of where punishment is an effective way to reduce uh, target behaviours on a holistic approach, punishment actually is not effective because it does it it has diff, it doesn't really generalize once you remove the punisher that behavior reemerges it has traumatic impacts on the individual it can generalize out to somebody becoming aversive or sorry the punisher becoming aversive so if i'm a parent and i'm punishing a child consistently the child will start to avoid me because i'm just a pain in the arse okay but what we have is restrictive practices and the behavioural uh, the, the behavior analysis community in Ireland coming together um, with the Health Information Quality Authority and saying these are the standards that need to be hit. This is the procedure and process to ensure that somebody whose behaviour presents as a concern is kept safe and that their rights are respected while they may present with beha behavioural challenges that can be in some cases dangerous and in other cases can be distressing but that we can try and figure out why that occurs try and maintain their dignity and re remain ethical in our approaches and the, the the health act will identify that that pbs positive behavior support and, and a applied behavior analysis are the best ways to support somebody in that type of behavioral distress while at the same time maintaining their dignity it sounds like we've come on leaps and bounds with how we can conceptualize someone's problems and support them. I even think of when I was in school, people that probably had some form of a learned disability wasn't picked up on, never mind 50 years ago when it would have been like 
the they would have had the ruler. My brothers, it wasn't when I was in school, but my brothers are a bit older than me. They used to have the principal had a ruler that he'd use if you know he were acting up. And I just think how it's so tragic in ways how so many people have fallen through the gaps. So we kind of know this now. It's, it's, it's more well known. I wonder in practice how much it's implemented, because it sounds like there could be a lot of training involved and it, it may, may take someone quite specialist. I'm wondering how that is rolled out in Ireland at least. Yeah, there are, there are three uh, master's programs in applied behaviour analysis in Ireland that I know of. Um, there's the one at NUI Galway. There is the one at Trinity College and there is one at Queen's University Belfast. And those three courses train people in applied behaviour analysis. Now, up until last year, James, the, I suppose, the regulatory body for behaviour analysis in Ireland would have been an American body called the Behaviour Analysis Certification Board, the BACB. Okay, so typically what you would have are behaviour analysts in Ireland, uh, you would see the term BCBA, okay, Board Certified Behaviour Analyst on their, on their title, okay, and that would, that would say that they have completed 750 hours of supervised practice as well as having a two-year master's in applied behaviour analysis and have become certified, you know, following an exam to be a Board Certified Behaviour Analyst. Okay, now, uh, in the last 12 months, I don't know, was it just a COVID related thing or what happened, but the behavior analysis certification board. So sorry, just to, to, to say that would have been a way of regulating uh, behavior analysis in Ireland. And it would have been a way to give consumers, be they parents, health services, um, disability providers, schools, organizations, whatever, some security to know that this that the person providing these services has hit criteria and that they are you know like we're, we're always saying in psychology you need to be accredited that's really really important because it's you know there's always questions about the protected title status of psychology in the last two years the BACB have said we're only doing America and Canada so that leaves Ireland in a little bit of a, a cast adrift on a lifeboat and it leaves the UK and it leaves Europe. So at the moment, the division of behaviour analysis in the Psychological Society of Ireland are forming the Irish Society for Behaviour Analysis, the ISBA. I think it's what that's what it's called, to ensure that the standards for behaviour analysts it remains. As well as that, only recently, the Psychological Society of Ireland have recognized the ABA course program in Galway for that when people have completed that course and completed their supervision and, and uh, you know, all of the, the, their course and supervision requirements that they can be a chartered behavioral psychologist. So that's really exciting and really interesting that now we, uh, we can call ourselves chartered behavioural psychologists. Now, that's great in one sense, but also in another sense, if I talk to a friend of mine who works in industry or who works in, uh, you know, in, in, in retail, and they say you're, you're working as a behavioural psychologist, 
they'll think of something completely different. So recently, one of the really exciting, I suppose, aspects of behavioural science has been the emergence of what we call applied behavioural science. So it's taking ABA out of the health, social care and educational fields and examining things such as human decision making. You you saw during COVID-19 the huge need for us to change our behaviour, human behaviour within a really short space of time. That we had uh, members of the behavioural research unit in the ESRI sitting on the National Public Health Emergency Team with NEFIT influencing and saying well this is how we understand human behaviour this is what we can expect uh, people to be doing as we ask them to wear masks or to stay at home or to uh, restrict their their movements Uh, so behavioural science is not just limited to those clinical health and educational fields it started to really blossom and there's a real recognition of behavioural sciences applications across a gamut of different things for instance last week I did a a webinar with Drink Aware, who were looking at ways that we can influence human behaviour regarding drinking habits. All of that, I, all that I've talked about in terms of operant conditioning, can be applied to habits. And if we had hours and hours and hours, James, we could, we could, we could go through a module on how habits are formed, or how operant and classical conditioning influences human decision making, and how it can have a knock-on impact onto why do I eat a muffin instead of going for a run well in a very in a very simple terms we know that where the the reinforcer is immediate versus something that's distant distal you know being fit and having a six-pack and that adrenaline rush is going to take me an hour to get versus a muffin is going to give me a slight kick uh you know in the next five minutes but in an hour's time I'm going to feel terrible that's that's a study of human behavior and, and knowing that and understanding all of these minutiae of human behavioral science has a knock-on impact to loads of our behaviors. Like if I say to you, why has the refresh button on Facebook, Twitter become, why, why is it every time you go onto Twitter, there is a different person's thread or post up there. They're using what they call um, intermittent and variable ratio of reinforcement. We could talk all day about it and there's probably a separate podcast but uh, hopefully that has summarised some of ABA and positive behaviour support for you. Absolutely, you've done a brilliant summary. You know, so much of what you say comes up in other aspects and a couple of things come to mind there and as you say, the, the reinforcement scheduling. I guess it's how poker machines work, how we can get addicted to checking our emails. So sometimes you get an email that is one you want, sometimes you don't. And even I remember hearing somewhere before, it was it was actually a a talk on personality traits and it was to do with willpower and the guy giving the talk was asked whether it was personality trait and he said that generally there isn't much of a difference in willpower from one person to another the difference is that that person who won't eat the cake just doesn't have cakes in the house so it's how we can change our behaviors to influence you don't have that that stimuli that will make you want to do it it's not that you're changing changing the environment you're changing the environment. I gave the example of of going into Lidl and they'll say, uh, you know, actually, I did it yesterday again, uh, mince pies. And if there's a special offer on mince pies, there's a lovely bias called restraint bias. I'll finish on this, James. The restraint bias is that bias that we possess where we believe when we are calm and when we are, you know, rational and we're using our system two brain, which is our rational, calm, you know, relaxed brain, 
and we have no temptations in front of us, we, we convince ourselves using restraint bias that we will be able to resist that temptation when it comes around, okay? And we buy the 12 mince pies because they're, geez, they're great value. It's only two euros for 12 mince pies. And we chuck them up into the shelf. And then what we don't factor into our decision is that there will be times where our child has been awake since four o'clock in the morning and we won't be in the mood to eat healthily and we'll be tired and we'll need food straight away and we'll feel rotten and we just need something to to perk us up and instead of one or two mince pies we end up having three or four and our restraint bias tells us that at a particular point in time we will have willpower and restraint but actually when we are tired, when we are fatigued, when we're distracted, when we have other things on our mind, our restraint and our willpower dwindles really dramatically. And, and I suppose that's a, an, another day's conversation. Thanks for that, Paul. That is all we have time for today. So I'll let you go off to dip into the mince pie cupboard. Uh, that was a, <laughs> a great explanation of ABA. And, you know, as you say, there's so many avenues you could go down it, but it's so applicable. I think we can all relate to it. And I think the more that becomes interwoven with our education system and just our understanding at large, the better outcomes we'll all have. Brilliant, James. Thanks so much for having me and the best of luck with the podcast.